You are listening to the next Best Picture podcast, and this is my interview with the writer, director, and producer for Dune, Denis Villeneuve. Daniel Howitt's interview with the visual effects supervisor, Paul Lambert, and Will Mavity's interview with the makeup supervisor, Donald Mowat. There's something happening to me. There's something awakening in my mind. I can't control it. What did you see? There's a crusade coming. Do you often dream things that happen just as you dreamed them? Yes. The test is simple. Remove your hand from the box, and you die. What's in the box? Pain. Hi, Denis. How are you today? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing extremely well. I'm talking to one of my favorite active working filmmakers right now. I am oh. beyond good. <laughs> You're very generous. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me today about your latest film, Dune, a movie that has had a tremendous amount of success, both on the streaming platform and also in the theaters where audiences are going back to the theaters multiple times to see it in IMAX formats. And how has the uh, success felt for you uh, since now that we're conducting this interview after its initial release? a huge bomb on my soul because uh, uh, I will say this, it's like uh, with everything happening in the world right now, uh, with the theatrical experience, with the pandemic, to know that people uh, finally uh, went back to the theaters this fall and, and saw movies and uh, the fact that the movie is back in IMAX right now in theaters, that's a... Uh, uh, Feels like a beautiful victory to me or the concept of what what we endure during the past months. Yeah. And I think Greg Frazier's uh, amazing cinematography can really be fully appreciated in that large scale format. Plus the sound work, the music by Hans Zimmer, you really truly did create a movie that deserves to be seen in the biggest format possible. And I commend you for that, sir, truly. Um, I want to know what a project of this scale, this size, for you, I imagine this had to have been a massive undertaking, not just in the adaptation process, but also in shooting. Can you tell me what two uh, elements, both from an adaptation standpoint and from an actual physical shooting standpoint, challenged you the most? But then when you saw the final result, you said to yourself, you know what? We got that. We nailed that. I would say that for me, the most difficult thing was definitely the adaptation, mm -hmm. the writing process. Because the novel is very complex, it's very dense, there's a lot of layers, and I wanted to make sure that the people who love the book, the fans of the book, will recognize the, the idea, the, the, the poetry uh, um, that uh, came from what everything that Herbert brought to the world with, with, the, with the, his novel. And uh, definitely to find equilibrium uh, between uh, to make sure that the, the people who knew the book will recognize those elements, but at the same time, that people who knew, knew nothing about the book will feel welcome watching the movie, that that uh, was by far the biggest challenge. It was a bigger challenge to write this movie than to go in the desert to everything. Yeah. The, the, the shooting part was uh, the fun part. <laughs> I mean, it's like it was physically demanding, but very re rewarding. Um, uh, the chance to bring the crew in, in the deep desert and uh, uh, the elements, nature, uh, really uh, helped us to bring the, the movie to life. It's like, uh, for me, it was important to stay close to the spirit of the book. The book was inspired by observation on, on nature, and I wanted the movie to be as close to nature as possible. I wanted the people, to the audience, to feel a familiarity with what they were seeing on screen. I wanted the planet Arrakis to feel close to, to us. So, it, um, uh, Because the topics, the, the things that are uh, described, approach in, in the novel are, I would say, pretty relevant to today's world. And so I wanted to uh, create that feeling of familiarity that uh, will increase the, the, the I think, uh, the drama on screen. Yeah, it, it is a very difficult adaptation, so much so that when I heard that this was being done, I had a feeling in your hands it was going to work, but having seen previous versions of it and being familiar with the source material myself, I know that this is a tough cookie to crack, and this is not easy for any filmmaker out there to, to tackle. So in regards to that, you know, this movie can't necessarily be 
four hours long, you have to naturally, you know, split it into two movies. And thus, you can get a lot more richness and character work and also tell the story at your own pace, which I really, really appreciated here with the two and a half hour runtime that you had. But I'm curious to know, this whole production strikes me in a very similar manner to what Peter Jackson did with a very different adaptation with Lord of the Rings uh, 20 years ago, and that that also was considered unfilmable and there was so much material to purse through. Is there a world where we might one day see deleted scenes or anything else that you might have shot that didn't make the theatrical cut? Because I imagine that you must have shot a tremendous amount of material. No, I, 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 uh, when I cut something, when something is out of the movie, for me, it's, it's dead. Okay. It's so painful sometimes to kill, to kill your darling. There are mm-hmm. things that I, I deeply love that I had to remove. And for me, the, those things, uh, if they don't belong to the movie, they don't belong to, 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 to reality. I mean, they're just things that, ideas that died in the process. And, and uh, I, um, so that's why I never had any deleted scene in any of my movies. I mean, for me, the final cut is the cut, what you see on screen. And uh, uh, but you're right. There are elements. There's things that I really <laughs> that I had to cut out, that I decided to cut for several reasons. Uh, and no, there will no, no, there will be no such thing as, as deleted scenes. And by the way, I never saw, to my knowledge, I never saw any deleted scenes from any movies that brought something positive to the, <laughs> to the project. I think that one. It's out. It's out. Okay. All right. You're doing Dune Part 2 next, which God, I can't tell you how relieved myself and so many others were when Warner Brothers made that announcement that it officially was greenlit. And I cannot be more excited to see how you wrap up the story, knowing what is to come. Do you feel that there is more pressure, less pressure? How are you feeling heading into Part 2? Uh, the pressure is not coming from the outside. Again, the pressure, the pressure is coming from uh, me and my relationship with the novel, all to make sure that uh, I will uh, uh, bring justice to the power of the novel. Let's say that part one was an introduction to a world and, and, and uh, to characters. And now I, I will say that, uh, frankly, big work starts. I mean, the, the part two will be uh, more complex, uh, 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 technically, but also narratively. So it's like it's, uh, it's uh, the challenge is uh, uh, on my shoulders, but uh, I, I would say the pressure is coming from myself, yeah. not from the outside. What is coming from the outside is uh, 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 a lot of energy. The fact that the movie has been welcome as it was, the enthusiasm that I received from, from uh, the, the, the fan of the movie made uh, means the world to me because it gives me the necessary energy to, necessary energy to go back in the desert, you know, if those movies are, are huge beast <laughs> yeah. and, and it re- required a lot of stamina, a lot of energy. So knowing that there are people waiting, that uh, people are enthusiastic about it, that means the world to me, gives me the, the energy to go back behind the camera. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, and the film has, you know, it's very rare that sometimes I do an interview uh, post-release, but uh, having, you know, it being out in the world now for a little bit, and I run an awards website, uh, we're tracking this film, and a lot of your uh, crew members are definitely in contention for serious awards consideration at the end of the year. Uh, this is top-tier phenomenal next level work from the costumes, the visual effects, the sound work. I, I could go on and on and on all day. Uh, what are your general thoughts, uh, having been an Academy Award nominee yourself? Uh, like, what, what is your general thoughts on uh, everyone receiving that kind of recognition for their work at this time of year? Frankly, that the beauty of that uh, the, those events is that it put the, the spotlight on people that are in the shadows. Uh, I'm talking about the costume designers, the cinematographer, the editor, the, the sound people, the, everybody that that, that, that uh, are not. Of course, you, you know, uh, we know who are the actors, who play with what. But the, I mean, what I think is interesting about those award ceremonies is just to to put uh, under the light people that are, are working in the shadow. That's the beauty of it, and that's why I'm doing the award campaign right now. It's for my crew, for my team, because I'm very proud of what. My team did, and I want to honor uh, all their work by uh, uh, doing press and uh, going to uh, the award uh, journey. Yeah, absolutely. 
And as you mentioned before, working with the cast here, like I imagine right now, it's maybe too early to speculate, perhaps. But um, has it been confirmed that everyone from part one will be returning for part two? Um, Or, you know, is there still a chance like that there might have to be a recast or some scheduling issues might abound? I know, but uh, listen, it's like uh, if when I choose these actors, yeah, uh, were chosen for a very specific reason. There will be no such thing as recasting it. <laughs> not possible in my mind. That would be against my religion. I mean, I, I have, of course, it will be a little bit complex schedule wise. Sure, but that's that's always like that. I mean, it's like uh, listen, I'm working with fantastic artists they they are a lot in, the, in demand that's normal so uh, we will have the the, the the schedule would be a puzzle that's the truth but that's that's because I'm, I'm working with great great artists so it's like uh, uh, I'm used to that that's part of the game absolutely yeah I hear you on that for sure what would you say looking at it all right now because you have half of the story done you have another half still to go and you've talked about this like pressure that you're putting on yourself for it, which is good. It could be self-motivating, I think, in these in these kinds of situations. But when you step back from it all and you look at the success of so far of what you've done and now having to live up to that with part two, what would you say for you has been the most rewarding element of working on Dune overall so far? So far. <laughs> uh, I would say that it was like to reconnect with a very old part of myself that uh, when I, the the part when I was the teenager part yeah when uh, uh, I use I use uh, when I was like uh, in my early teens to be really a big dreamer and and a very ambitious and and uh, I would I would say also arrogant dreamer but still <laughs> there was like there's an energy there that uh, I uh, didn't connect with in a very long time and doing doing I had to connect with with uh, that part of myself and that I would say was like. Uh, uh, very interesting, and and it's it's really um, I had a lot of fun making movies, uh, a PG thirteen movie, meaning that I uh, to approach violence and uh, um, in a different way, to make yeah. it more accessible. But honestly, I really enjoyed that process, and uh, for me to it's, it's always interesting as a filmmaker to try something new, and uh, that was uh, really uh, interesting. You mentioned trying something new here, and uh, obviously you're working on part two. You've expressed interest in approaching Messiah. You know, that's obviously down the line. But is there a desire to scale back a bit? When Dune is in your rear view and you're moving on from that, I want to know, like, are, are you curious to go back to smaller scale films like, say, Prisoners or Sicario versus something as big and grand as this? Or do you want to stay in this big machine? First of all, I will say that I'm always making each movie like if it was the last one. Okay. Because it's so much energy, so much work. So I'm doing Dune Part 2. And after that, I will see where I am. I think that comes across, by the way. Yeah, but thank you very much, but you're generous. But the thing is, I, I'm really giving everything. And so I don't know after Part 2 how I will feel. I know now that it makes total sense to me to finish what I had begun. Yeah. Doing Part 2 right away. And after that, uh, what would be my level of energy? I will say that those movies require, again, a lot of stamina, and it's something that I have, I, I have right now. I don't know how I will be in 20 years. So I will say that I will, uh, uh, it would make sense for me to have projects in the near future that are uh, a bigger scope. But uh, uh, again, my horizon, I don't see more far away than June Part 2 right now. After that, I see where I am. You know, what is good, those journeys are quite long. It's a few years. So you, you're always a different human being when you come out, you're coming out of the, of the movie. Yeah. So I'll see if I, I, I still want to do sci-fi or I want to do a musical <laughs> or a cartoon. I don't know. And I love to think this way. I love the freedom. I love to finish a movie, to ask myself the question with all honesty, do I want to make cinema again? Yes, all right, what next? Okay, and then it's like, I love, I, it's, a, it's that the beauty of this job is that freedom, you know? to choose it again and and uh, I want to keep that that the door open. Awesome. I love it. And then we'll wrap things up here with something very easy and straightforward. Two collaborators uh that you worked with on this film, Greg Frazier, Hans Zimmer, the score, the visuals, uh elements that are being praised all throughout. What would you say is your favorite shot in the movie? And what would you say is your favorite <laughs> piece of music that Hans Zimmer wrote for the movie? 
Uh, that's a tough question. <laughs> I would say that uh, I would say that a, a piece of music that really impressed me was uh, the piece that Hans wrote when uh, Paul encounter a worm for the first time. Oh my God! Yes, I love that so much. Why? Because in, instead of of, of scoring uh, a monster, he scored an encounter with a, a spiritual being. Mm-hmm. He didn't score a, a Godzilla moment. He brought spirituality and something sacred to the moment where Paul see a worm for the very first time and I thought that that was my wish and I, when I heard this call I, I thought it was absolutely phenomenal and it, it brought tears in my eyes I thought it was, it was a, it's a genius moment um, and for Greg there's a, again a, my, one of my favorite shots is difficult to say I will say that the, there are so many of them I will say that the shot of Paul uh, stepping into the, 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 the dune for the first time is footstep yeah, and when his knee lands on on the on the foreground and he touched the the sand with his with his hand for the first time, trying to seeing spice in his, I I think it's a shot that uh, uh, shot uh, those first step that that little dirty shot with the footstep. It's, it's a really a shot that I love a lot. But there's many of them, you know. It's like uh, a lot of them. Yeah. Also paired up with that uh, score track that you mentioned there from uh, Zimmer. So (laughs) that scene definitely is very, very special. Well, Denis, I really thank you so much for your time today discussing Dune part one with us here. And I wish you the best of luck on part two and beyond and everything that is to come this award season. You're very generous. Thank you very much. I wish you a great end of this. Thank you. Absolutely. Take care. You inherit too much power. You have proven you can rule yourself. Now you must learn to rule others. Something none of your ancestors learned. My father rules an entire planet. He's losing it. He's getting a richer one. He'll lose that one too. Arrakis is a death trap. This is an extermination. They're picking my family off one by one. Let's fight like demons. An animal caught in a trap will gnaw off its own leg to escape. What will you do? Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me about the visual effects of Dune. You are very welcome, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of people who don't fully understand visual effects. I think we throw the term CGI out there just as a blanket statement for anything we don't understand on screen. Uh, So could you tell me, you're the visual effects supervisor for Dune. What does that mean? What does your role entail on Dune? Basically, I, uh, I help to create the director's vision to, to, in this particular case, to extend the worlds which Denis and the production designer have, have uh, drawn and have, have concepted. I, uh, I, uh, I'm involved in the, uh, uh, in the concepting of those, uh, basically I'm involved in how, how I can create the worlds based on those concepts, how I can, uh, help influence the shooting of of uh, the imagery so that I can then extend those worlds in in uh, visual effects and you know it's a it's a, there are there are a multitude of ways to actually do this and but then on this one particularly with uh, with uh, with the Denis and Patrice and Greg and 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 Gert the the other heads of departments like we actually spent a good five to six months in pre-production actually trying to figure out the best ways to actually come up with the best basis for like uh, our uh, visual effects plates because like you know this is a a uh, science fiction movie and we are going to be producing a lot of visual effects in there we are going to try to try to do a lot of the work in camera as well and what that what that tends to give you is that if you have uh, a good portion of the plate a good portion of uh, the material in, in the plate already, it makes the visual effects so much easier to then be able to build from. You know, like if you just have somebody inside of a blue box, it can it can get very tricky to, like you tend to spend more time 
questioning the believability uh, of of like what you're producing rather than like concentrating on the creative aspect of it so my job is to is to try to come up with uh, the best ways in which i can i can then have the plates to then be able to uh, to like extend them out and whether that's reference getting getting as much in as uh, in camera as possible and you know this was june was actually one of the most collaborative experiences i've ever had on a movie and that like everybody was on the same page and in the, in the, in like trying to in trying to do the best they can and help each other and help each department out you know like denia and patrice had spent the good part of a just under a year concepting uh, the entire movie, you know, like concepting what the worm looked like, concepting what Giddy Prime looked like, what what Arakeen looked like, what like the planet Arrakis looked like, and and usually in uh, visual effects, concept work is a is a springboard to extending ideas. But Denis was so 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 happy with this, with all the visuals he created. He was adamant that okay, like our sets. We're going to build this, and virtually, I'm going to build this. And these, these like spacecraft, are like basically we will be matching what these drawings are. And and like uh, even in even in reviews, we were we would a b between what was being produced by the facility, whether it be the ornithopter or the, uh, one of the, uh, the one of the uh, other environments. And like we we would basically a b the imagery, and if it didn't match is okay keep going until it matches and you know i've never been on a show where it's been that where it's been that rigid but denis often talks about how on blade runner he let things slip slightly and that you know some of the designs weren't weren't like a fully fully implemented so like he was he was adamant on this one okay look i spent a lot of time with patrice on this and so basically this is uh, what i want to do and I usually have a have quite a large team on set, so I have myself, my producer. I have people called data wranglers, and what they do is they're always taking reference photography of like any objects which like we need to recreate, or like I'm scanning sets. You know, I'm I'm actually uh, doing a process called lidar, so that like I'm actually collecting what the geometric information is from a particular set. The idea being that once once the shoot is finished, we can actually recreate that set in post-production. So, like, if if we need to extend anything from from the shoot, we can use all of that data. And and like, uh, trust me, we uh, we scanned every single set in uh, Budapest. And like, uh, I also had a team out in um, out in Wadi Ram in uh, in Jordan. And like, basically, we scanned we scanned mountains. Like, they actually spent weeks with like drones and and scanners actually getting all the geometric information so that we could build our routine. And so, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a number of personnel to actually bring this together. And then like, you know, in post, you have hundreds of people actually working on. So, so like when you're sat in the movies and by the time it gets to the visual effects credits and you see hundreds of names is because it takes hundreds of people to actually get this done properly. Yeah. Was that your first time using LIDAR in this way? No, no, no. Like a, it's a very common uh, thing now to to actually uh, uh, have to have to record sets in this particular manner because, like, you know, like sometimes like you have to recreate this set because, like, rather than go back and do a reshoot, well, no, you can you can virtually create this so that you can then do a shot. That was missing. We never did any of that on the on the June because our additional photography were was uh, was, uh, was was for additional scenes. So, but like you never know what's going to happen in post. So, like basically, it's always uh, better to be safe than yeah. uh, you know. Like actually, when we were out in Jordan with uh, with the uh, like a, we actually flew a helicopter to an area where like we had scouted and and. And he had decided, okay, this is where Arakeen's going to be. And like it's actually based on a physical uh place in Jordan where you are surrounded by these amazing, amazing uh, rock structures. So like every time you see Arakeen, it's always on the, you know, like the actual base is a is a helicopter flight into that area. Now, when we got into the post, we did shift some of the mountains around, but like it's all it's all based on something real. And that was the philosophy of the shoot, you know, like that he wanted. Uh, everything to be as grounded and as photoreal as possible. So, like the, the idea was to to like try and come up with the best techniques 
to be able to do that to to be successful. Yeah, you hinted at this earlier. I, I read a quote. I'm I'm, par- I'm going to paraphrase the, the quote from Denis, feeling like some of the visual effects, which Academy Award winning visual effects, incredible work, but he felt that they suffered from not capturing enough on set. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more about what the the difference in approaching Blade Runner 2049 and Dune from a visual effects perspective? Okay, so what we uh, do is is um, from the production design, you have various drawings, which are like the actual concepts. And it's a common occurrence in visual effect in that like you have this uh, this image designed in a 2D form, which like say it's a spacecraft. And if it's only a 2D image and like you've not actually built like a physical vehicle, which like copies that, like it, it, there is a little bit of interpretation because like you need to take this 2D image and create a 3D object for it. And what tends to happen is that like you do your first pass, you show it, it gets approved, and then like you start uh, tweaking it and like you start adding textures and things, and and inevitably it will start to deviate from what it was originally. It's just it's just the process. So that, that that's basically what happens, and that's what Denis was. Uh, he was uh, referring to on like some of the assets on on uh, Blade Runner. So like that's why he was adamant on this one. Like that's like we actually went through a process of like doing like the AB. Does it match this note? I right, keep going and and like it, you know. And it was a very rigid environment. But like Denis having gone through certain ships and things changing in Blade Runner, which like once you realise it's too late because like you spent months doing it, and it's only when you compare the two. Oh, okay, like this is. This is actually slightly different. So that's where what he meant by that. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, Please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Well, and you, you've obviously talked a lot so far about how the pr- uh, production designer that you guys spent months and months developing these ideas together. Can you talk a little bit about your communication with all the other team leads, all the other teams, how you had to stay in line, how you made sure everything was a unified whole so that one little piece didn't make the whole thing fall apart? Yeah, yeah totally. So uh, I got to Budapest in uh, October 20. Oh my goodness, it's, uh, I was on the project for uh, just under two and a half years. So it's it's tricky to work out <laughs> <laughs> the actual dates, but it's 2018, I guess. October, yeah, 2018. And like we weren't due to shoot until like March. So all that time is pre-production where like we go into the offices and we basically discuss how we're going to be doing uh, different aspects of the, the movie. Like, you know, each day would be something different. Like sometimes Patricia's department would create like a cardboard model of a set 
of a particular set in which we were going to build so that like we could all discuss you know uh, various approaches to things like so like you have greg the um the op and you have myself you have Gert, the special effects and like we all chime in as to as to as to what the best approach would be and you know i have a i have a you know a pet peeve about lighting you know it's um I told everybody basically like we're at a point in visual effects where like you can take any piece of footage, any piece of footage, and you can put any background behind that piece of footage. But if the lighting intent for the foreground doesn't match the background, there isn't much you can do. Yes, I can pull and pull and push the image around slightly with grades and stuff, but it's never truly going to sit right. And like you see it all the time because like decisions are made in both. You know, it's not the fault of like any artist as to as to being able to put together a composite it's just decisions are made for for a particular background which like which does doesn't match the foreground and like there isn't much you can do about apart from adding a big piece of camera shake to like try and hide <laughs> the issues which is which is definitely a technique used used a lot so so you know during these meetings i would say that like okay to get the lighting correct and like i'd kind of be talking for greg and then greg would look at me and like he'd be happy because like i'm because like i'm actually fighting his battles as well as you know as well as mine because i know that if i don't get the best base uh from the photography i'm, I'm kind of screwed you know i'm not going to be able to uh to like fix it so you know working in collaboration with greg coming up with the different techniques and like you know he's such a fantastic cinematographer he's a he understands all the technicalities of like uh, visual effects as well. You know, like he did the he did the first uh, season of uh, Mandalorian, so you know he has a very good grasp of 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 the uh, technicalities. Now, I, I did First Man as well, which was which was on an LED screen as well. So obviously, we talked about was there any potential things which we could do on an LED screen, but like it was, you know, like uh, he he was totally right in that in that like we can't achieve that like hot arid desert light on an LED screen you just can't if if the movie was all set at sunset or like sunrise that's perfect but like there isn't a way to get that like harsh light and and we knew that Denis wanted to go to uh, the uh, deserts as well so like we didn't entertain that idea too much um but yeah so like I was always pushing uh for us to be able to get the best lighting setup and greg loved that because like because like, that was like the actual two of us pushing up against production because the production wanted to do it a certain way and like we wanted to go outside and you know like for example there's a there's a particular setup inside the ornithopter you know traditionally like you would shoot this up the green uh shoot the interiors up against the green screen or a blue screen but like the one thing which we weren't going to do is is put uh try to replicate sunlight inside of a studio right so so basically what we did is and like greg greg like had talked about potentially putting our gimbal which is the apparatus where you stick the ornithopter and then like you can shift around in, in like a various axes to like simulate it flying and greg had talked about potentially putting it on the roof of the of the uh, studio but like it did there just isn't the structural integrity to actually do that so what we actually did is we found the highest hill out outside of Budapest we built it on top of there and like and like basically we uh surrounded the gimbal with this with like a sand colored ramp you know the idea being that on a sunny day you, you would get the sun bouncing onto the ramp into the cockpit and you know the cockpit was this glass bowl full of full of reflections but what that actually gave you was the perfect lighting reference short of being out in the desert flying with this thing and like so even those dailies felt as if like you were already outside in the desert. And then like for the guys and girls in at the Dino in posted was then just a really skillfully blended plates, which we had shot in the UAE of like flying over the desert and doing a different form of compositing to, to actually blend those plates together. So that like, you didn't lose any of the original details. It just made for a, a, a far better uh, composite and and then of course all of Patrice's designs were absolutely huge absolutely huge like they were massive like huge interiors and so like we talked about okay so we're going to build a certain section of this interior and then like visual effects takes over and traditionally again traditionally what you do is you build it up to a certain height and then like you change it to a blue or green knowing that 
you're going to um, extend that out. So what we decided was that rather than doing that, because like I actually come from a composite background and, and like I know that when you get these plates, uh, usually like DOP can't light those areas correctly without it affecting the actual rest of the uh, the uh, plate. So usually it doesn't get lit correctly and it's dark. And in the end, it didn't have to be green or blue because like you ended up just cutting everything up by hand anyway. So what we decided was, okay, rather than uh, cutting off to such a, color which like doesn't fit our world why not keep the base color of what it would have been say like you had these highly textured walls like it would then be a very it'd be a constant color going up to the roof and it would be a cheap version of it and then like there were some scenes where like we actually built some rafts in the roof as well which were like basically just like scaffold with like uh silk around it like again very cheaply colored to what it would be you know like and this way, like Greg could actually light the scene as if it was uh, an actually fully built set. And then like, you know, if we ever saw up into there, I would just be adding texture rather than a complete replacement. So, you know, the film is peppered with these techniques, you know, simple techniques, but because we knew that like, we were never going to be in a position on this movie where, where like basically we shoot something and then like we try and figure it out in post you know Denis had spent all this time Denis had spent so much time on on on, on the props on the costumes on the on the sets you know he everything was known as to what it was going to be yes there were tiny little deviations obviously but like it was never a case of well, why don't we try this why don't we do this? there was never that fix it in post mentality and like I had worked with uh, with Gert before the uh, special effects supervisor We'd both been on Blade Runner, so like uh, we knew exactly how each other worked, and like he created so many uh, setups for uh, for June. Like uh, like he recently told me that like uh, that he actually used eighteen tons worth of sand and dust throughout the uh, production because we were literally blowing sand. <laughs> like we were blowing sand out in the desert in in uh, Jordan, and like on the back lot in Budapest to, to actually help simulate what the environment was, you know, you know being out of the desert, but, but then also to actually simulate the dust wash coming from, like, the actual ornithopters, because Patrice had built these ornithopters and, like, we shipped where, uh, them out to Jordan and, like, we shipped them out to Budapest. And we put them on cranes as well. So, like, basically we would lift them up and touch them down and and that would be them taking off and and landing now they didn't have wings and we put wings on in cg but just to get that interaction we just blasted sand all, all the time and there would be days where like you'd get home right and you would just completely orange you know like you had orange in your hair and it took shower after shower to actually get rid of that stuff but it was so beneficial you know and i'm a big believer that rather than uh, the uh, visual effects work breaking everything down in different layers to then put them all together again i'm a big believer uh, in like in not doing the layers and just and just trying to do everything in one go because coming from a composite and i know that yes it's a it's a harder composite to do, but I also know that you get a far more believable result. And, you know, like there were some tricky things to do because like uh, shots like where you see Duncan getting out of the um, the uh, ornithopter where like he's just landed at the spaceport. On the back lot in Budapest, we had uh, built, you know, like a it, was a it was a freshly cemented floor, but then like we had covered covered uh, the background, all of this uh, sand colored um panels you know again avoided avoiding green or blue because we knew that eric king was going to be sand colored or like if we saw the desert out that bit it was going to be sand colored so the idea would be okay we'll have a sand colored screen you know again something simple but then obviously like you have these real ornithopters you have duncan getting out we're putting the wings and we're blasting it with brown sand so you got brown sand going up to up against the, the brown screen so it took a certain skill to be able to put this all together but but again, like having that practical sand in, interact with everybody and, and going over the background and then doing slightly different composite techniques to, to be able to blend it all together, then, you know, gives you, well, I feel a, a much more believable composite because it's all of a blend rather than just trying to extract the foreground and completely replace the, the background. So like this was all discussed in those meetings and, you know, Denis had... Um, from Gerd as well, like Denis had wanted 
some form of physical way to show uh, that the worm was approaching, you know, and uh, Dirt came up with this great idea where, where like he built these uh, 12, 12 foot by 12 foot plates, which we buried in the sand, deep in the sand. And these plates were attached to a uh, vibrating piece of equipment. And like when he really pushed it, like you could actually start to see ripples in the sand and like it almost felt like water but then like another thing which which it did is was that if you were stood on on this plate you actually start sinking into the ground right so those shots where you see uh paul and gurney uh and then they are running away from the spice crawler because it's just about to be eaten and they fall and you see them going into the ground that's that's actually real that's actually them going into the sand and and above the plate and what we did in visual effects was then extend that out to like a much wider area again you know the idea being that that like you have something physical which you then play off to then to then uh, augment so it's um it was a fantastic collaboration between like it everybody in those meetings to to like come up with different ways and different techniques and you know Sometimes there were outlandish ideas, but then, like you know, it always got to to a point. Where, okay, you know, we'll test this, and it works. You know, that's great. That's good. Have you have you started pre production process on Dune Two? Uh, there was nothing I couldn't talk about. <laughs> okay, uh, you know, I have about to ask. To, to, yeah, of course, of course, and I had a feeling that like uh, you would ask, but but yeah, like uh, I can't I can't discuss any of that. Sure, totally, totally. <laughs> understand. Well, you know, uh, obviously your work on this film is is so incredible. We see people all the time on the internet, like I was kind of hinting at at the beginning, just uh, critiquing. They'll have just vague critiques of visual effects. Oh, there's too much CGI. There's uh, they should have used more practical effects. Just w- throwing things out there. I'd love to hear from you. What do you think the biggest misconception people outside of your industry have about visual effects, and and what would you want to say to help correct that? Biggest misconception. That's the. That's a really good question. It's 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 like you know that it's the the difference in a good visual effect and a bad visual effect is 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 what's being asked for. You know, it's it's sometimes you you spend so much time in trying to make something so believable, and then like you'll get a comment when like a, something's trying to be final that like oh just you know for example just take uh, digital humans. For example, oh, can we make the spec in in uh, the eye just a bit brighter? Because, like, you know, I just want his eyes to sing or his eyes to sing, and you do that, and suddenly things don't look believable anymore. But it, and I go to digital humans because that that's something which is so hard to, uh, to actually get right. But it's the same for everything else. It's it, it's funny because like you sometimes read people's comments about visual effects and like somebody's saying that oh god look that was that was totally cgi and, and you know sometimes it's not actually cgi it's actually the plate <laughs> i saw that recently in a comment about like <laughs> something in june is like if only i was gonna answer but i'm not going to but but you don't you know, want to you don't want to drop the name right here who you saw you don't want to call them out <laughs> no, no, no. no but you know and and yeah, it's a it's a tricky one. It's a it's a really tricky one. But you, you know, like everybody works so hard to get these things to be as believable as possible. And look, it's the same artists who work on the good and and the and the ones which are perceived as bad. It's it's the same people. You know what I mean? So look, it's it's when you have last minute changes, there isn't much you can do. Like you know, visual effects isn't magic. You know, there honestly isn't a button which you press and like it all it all happens. Whatever a producer may tell you, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. So so like it needs time. So you know, if you have a reshoot and you're like a month away from delivery and you've got some really hard effect to actually put in there, that there is, things need time. It's not like you throw 100 people on it. No, things need time to. You know, it, it's it's you need to iterate. You do a version, and like it look good, and then like you're not quite sure what's wrong with it, and then like so then like you need time to to investigate that. Then like you update it and you change it, and like and basically you like hone it down to like something believable. And a lot of times you don't actually get that particular. Uh, I want to call it a luxury, but like that, that, that it should be the basis. So like. Because like 
you can watch a movie and you see some absolutely stunning work and then like you see another scene but it's done by the same by the same people and it's not up to that standard and you know you know that like uh something happened where like it, it was a reshoot or like time wasn't or like a, it, it, it was a last minute change you know it's a, it's a, and like you see that all the time but it's 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 just because like we just because you can do anything in visual effects doesn't mean you should you know what i mean it, it's a it's a craft it's it's an art and it needs to be given time it really does that's good well, somebody recently uh, gave, gave a specific compliment to the visual effects in Dune. That's uh, Stephen King himself tweeted a direct compliment to your work. He said, uh, have you seen this tweet? Have you seen it? So, yeah, he said, uh, hard to believe we can do all these amazing special effects and still not achieve world peace. So two part question for you. What's it like having a legend like Stephen King specifically complimenting your work? And second part, so are you working on world peace? Is that next up uh, on your list? <laughs> uh, look, it, it's uh, fantastic to be reading uh, how people have been enjoying the movie. The like, uh, visual effects are like one, one aspect of this movie. And like, uh, you know, the sound, the, the, the cast, the direction, the production, you know, everything gelled on this. So like, it's, such a great feeling to be hearing these kind of comments. It's, it's, it's great. You know, it's a, it's a fantastic. Now as to world peace, you know, <laughs> if it was, if it was all a visual, oh God, we would have this all sorted out in no time, but it, <laughs> unfortunately it's not, unfortunately it's not, but uh, if it was all a 2D image, yeah, we would have this figured out. No problem. I'm confident that you could do it if that were the case. Yeah. Well, Paul, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for your work in Dune. I, I really is spectacular. And I, I uh, wish you all the best on Dune Part 2. Thank you so much, Daniel. One day, the legend will be born. All of civilization depends on it. The future. I can see it. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. My Lord Duke. Where the fear is gone, only I will remain. talk to you about Baron Harkonnen and the rest of the Harkonnens, but before we get into that, what are some of the other characters in the film that you worked on? I know the FYC ads are specifically singling out Baron Harkonnen, and I know there are the other Harkonnens, but uh, I guess you're the overall head for all kind of the makeup for this, so who are some of the other ones I should ask you about? Well, I think what we did is, you know, narrowing it down in terms of the Baron is, it's huge, you know, mm -hmm. and no pun intended, but I think I specifically wanted those people to build it and be part of the team mm -hmm. and work with me and, and co-design and collaborate. So I think that's why you're seeing the three of us, but it took uh, like the whole team, everybody, we had a lot to do. I would say because of the nature of the Baron and that makeup, which was an 18 week prep period, you know, even though it shoots, I mean, it's it's I mean, it's like everything in films. It's the it's the quality, not the quantity. It plays for originally it was only five days. I think we went to seven, but it was preparation of 18 weeks for that, yeah. the suit and the amount of work and the, you know, the nature of it. But uh, I would say so. Maybe that's, you know, a, a huge thing. But uh, Dave Batista, Javier Bardem. Uh, David DeSmalchin, those were big, relatively yeah. big makeups. It took a lot of preparation. Uh, so I, I uh, you know, personally looked after, you know, Dave Batista and Javier Bardem. And then I had uh, friends of mine in LA, Steve Prouty, do a makeup test with the bald cap and try that. We had to really work that whole lookout around the same time as we prep, started prepping the Baron. We had lots right. of new pieces. So I guess the Baron, as you said, is the big one. So, um, uh, first off, how many hours a day was poor Stellan uh, sitting there getting prepped for makeup? Um, he was, well, I know you'll read all kinds of different accounts, but the truth of it, uh, when he was wearing his costume, 
where you don't see his fat suit, mm -hmm. uh, which was most of the time that makeup was four, four and a half hours. Oh, it's not that bad. But like, not uh, that bad at all with five people doing the application. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wins without the, the, which would have been, uh, let me see, in the steam room. And then, of course, the bathtub. Uh, that was more like six to six and a half hours because the suit needs a lot of maintenance and a cooling, yeah. unit, et cetera. So there's that. Dave Batista was an hour and a half. Okay. That's long for, I mean, because it's just his face, but it's yeah. still a lot. Dave, uh, David Desmalchin was two and a half hours. Javier Bardem about an hour. You know, everyone an hour kind of thing. Yeah. But a character like the Baron, you see, I guess I have to point out, you wouldn't have in a film every day. It's not possible. Your film would be dictated completely by the makeup time. Right. Of four hour preparation, an hour and a half to clean up. How much shooting time are you gonna have? So how did you uh, how did you decide the Baron was gonna, cause I know in the, the Lynch version, he's got hair, he's kind of covered in pustules. How did you decide on the particular look for the Baron that you got? Was there inspiration from drawings, from, uh, the Herbert estate, or I mean, how did you kind of settle on this? Well, I mean, with Denis Villeneuve, he all you know has some of the same storyboard people and really early preliminary concept people that are not, I'm not even sure what we call them because they're not really art department, they're very pre pre that help with the ornithopters. And so, I think that there are people who sketch and draw and draft certain things. I get a couple of things from them. I think the very first drawing was a gorilla basically, with a human face, which I thought was really interesting, which then I kind of go with and go, okay, gorilla, big. I thought Marlon Brando, Apocalypse Now, but actually, moreover, Island of Dr. Moreau mm. is what I started kind of, there was more to it, and and he liked it, and then I sort of, we talked about it, and we started some ideas, and, and then I had to, you know, who's going to build this? It started off as just, you know, a jowl and neck and a maybe a chess piece, but it became obvious he wanted to go more. We weren't sure. It wasn't a guarantee. It was a complete uh, practical makeup, you know. Mm. It was, in all honesty, I mean, it was very much could have been a, a, a CG digital thing, which it wasn't. It was all practical, all right. in camera. So I'm very lucky that, you know, but not every film will do that. And sometimes yeah. there's no time or, you know, whatever. Uh, and then I had to figure out who should do, be involved with this, which is how I came to uh, my group of people in Sweden who'd worked with me before and with Stellan. So it was kind of a enough signs for me saying this makes the most sense to have them build this and life cast Stellan while we're prepping all the other characters. So how much did that fat suit weigh? Uh, 20 pounds, approximately. And you said everything's in camera. So how was it rigged so when he could extend up so he's uh, kind of levitating. So he's on the cables there, right? He's on cable. We only use the stuntman once, maybe twice. The beauty of that also is that particular costume, that sort of sheath that's very long, that's quite effective as he's pulled up on the cables, right? And that was, um, I think that was one of the more difficult things. And then certainly the bathtub, I know that I mean, there are, the engineering, Louvé Larson and Ava and the, everybody in Stockholm in the shop, was it was huge to engineer that for when, I guess one of the effects people, GERD or somebody called me and started asking from production designer how, let's get specific measurements because we're making a bathtub mm -hmm. and then what are we putting in it? And it started as one thing and ended up as a kind of black oil. Yeah which would act as a release agent on the makeup, et cetera. Plus the suit was buoyant. And then it required, I had, Lube had to go on the weekend and figure out a way to like destroy a suit to, you know, drill some holes in it. So it could actually be pulled down. Oh my God. By the rigging crew. So there was a lot of, of engineering was required. So yeah, I was curious, how did you preserve in a very makeup heavy cast on his face and body how did you preserve the look when he comes out of the oil because i assume that must have been a nightmare to get the materials that don't smear and melt in those circumstances um i think the biggest thing uh was it was going to release the makeup but it also you know as a lubricant oil releases most makeup so mm -hmm. that was a day but it, that shot over one day so it was you know a little bit of drama and and then get it worked out right right um okay so He's generally insane. That character work is so good. But tell me a little bit about 
Dave Batista, and um, I always watch his name, David. The small chin. The small chin. The small chin. The small chin. Yes. Yeah, they were. David Desmalchin called me up, and we'd worked together before. And he was, you know, very concerned because he he was meant to shave his head. Actually, the bald cap was a last, not last minute, but he ended up getting cast in another film. <laughs> and he, we just said, look, let's try and work this out. And I went to Denis and kind of said to him, "What should we do? Can we try this?" And he was very open to it because he likes David so much. And that's what we did. And I had Steve Prouty, a very good makeup effects guy in LA, do a life do a life cast and and try. And then um, I was curious, you know, there's there's a scene, I don't want to get too spoilery, but there's a scene where uh, I guess his state in life changes a little bit, and you, uh, you've you done a good job, well, you know, the aftermath of the poison, it's, it's impact on the, the various figures and on the Baron. Did you ever do any kind of interesting effects work to show? Yeah. I mean, we actually, I mean, I, when I saw the film, you know, you've got everybody lying down. We did a really, I thought it was a very nice makeup that was based on a French film. There was something quite distorted looking and we just did some theatrical makeups and and I decided like to have sort of foaming of the mouth. I just took some vitamin C like not well, like actually it was emergency and mixed it up. And I had all my team just put that on everybody. So it looked like kind of gross, sort of vomity, rabbit like and these quite theatrical makeups that they already had and then just intensified it. Oh, it looks so good. And then uh, Javier Bardem's character. Tell me about the. My dad actually didn't recognize him and he loves Javier Bardem. So, I mean, that's. Oh, he was like an incredible man, a great actor. He would text me a little bit before we met him. And then I was able to meet him uh, a little bit before and work on these little tattoos and changing his skin and making it feel leathery and that he's in the desert and he just fit in. And it was a delight. I really enjoyed doing that makeup on him very much. So, you know, one thing I noticed with uh, David Del smashing and um obviously stellan is that those are two very actors with very expressive faces and that really shines through the heavy prosthetics work how did you leave those two actors who really show so much with their face allowing Mm -hmm. them to be so expressive under pretty thick makeup like that well i mean the thing is makeup can be whatever it is if you keep the center of the face which we kept with david asmalchen and with with baron with stellan you have then you see who they are I mean, the whole idea of casting somebody, particularly Stellan, who's so famous and brilliant, like world-renowned actor, if you're going to cover up his face and make him completely transformative where you don't even know who it is, and I don't know, sometimes I wonder why are they in it? Yeah. I think that's the best act because sometimes you do want that. You know, the Grinch is a whole different thing. <laughs> but it wouldn't work in this. You know, you wanted to see Stellan's, and that's when people go, oh my God, I can see his eyes. And I think that for me, because it's based and it's grounded in reality, I think that's very important in a film like this, certainly for Denis and for for what we were doing. I felt it was the right way to go. Well, they all look spectacular. Uh, I assume with the fact we've announced Doom Part 2, I can assume you'll be coming back to give us all kinds of new creations. I, you know, look, when we were doing the film, I thought every character I had to think about what happens after where do we go if you make a decision now do you live with this um so i hope so but i just want to savor this moment and and enjoy this film and while people are going back to the movies and it's sort of the light at the end of the tunnel it feels like we're you know just coming out a little bit Uh, so i'm kind of just sticking as they say live in the moment because i i don't often get to do that well, I wish you the best of luck this Oscar season. I've been waiting for you to get your first nomination for a couple of years now at the Bake Offs, and I think I think this year is going to be the one. So, uh... <laughs> well, I'm, it's very nice of you to say, but you know, it would be no it, look. All of it, it's gravy. It would be incredible. But to be honest with you, the fact that I'm still working after 30 years doing what I love to do with great people, it's the prize. That's the prize. People forget what the prize is sometimes. You know, it's a beautiful way uh, to look at it. You want our best in business. So thank you so much. Really nice of you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with the writer, director, and producer for Dune, Denny Villeneuve, as well as Daniel Howitt's interview with the visual effects supervisor, Paul Lambert, and Will Mavity's interview with the makeup and hair head and prosthetic designer. Donald Mowat here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Dune is currently nominated for 10 Critics' Choice Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director for Denis Villeneuve, Best Adapted Screenplay, 
best visual effects and best hair and makeup. Dune is currently available to rent and also purchase on Blu-ray 4K UHD. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and we are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.